Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to say a very good morning to Millie Ross. Morning, Millie. Good morning. What a misty, misty day out there. I dro- it's so funny, you know, living on the other side of the Great Dividing Range now. I'm sure Stephen said it a million times, but it, it, the weather changes. It almost oh, totally. inevitably, so it's lovely and clear at home. We've had beautiful, very mild actually. It was really mild yesterday, warm yesterday and mild last night. Just the last couple of days, but then as I came down into the into the fog, <laughs> the fog. I thought, oh, come on, that's not. <laughs> I don't mind that reversing because often as you go up the hill, it starts to rain. So, <laughs> so you think, oh yeah, I'm nearly home. <laughs> but uh, yeah, what a what a an unusual but interesting autumn we're having, and I very. I, I, I'm sure we all feel that conflict when it's a lovely, warm, beautiful day, and you know you're just getting this extended sort of Indian summer. Um, into autumn that it's really pleasant but also you know that comes right up against not enough rain and, yes. and you know the, obviously last weekend was a, a godsend for all the gardeners but we need a follow-up oh particularly for do. a fungi hunter we need a follow-up please <laughs> so we'll just pop that order in hey so. it is it is fungi season coming up well it's coming up and and i mean i'm doing I, you know i've probably spoken the last few years having become a bit of an alison pulio um fan what do you what it's like i don't groupie there's plenty of us out there you know it's amazing but um and you know, to become my friend, but um, most of Alison's workshops probably have sold out by now, but it's worth having a look on her website if people are interested. She does the most fantastic ecological, um, inspirational, fun, informative, engaging um, walks and, and also workshops um, and does them for all sorts of places. And, and sometimes you can find really, really cheap ones because they're being funded by perhaps the local land care group or, you know, it might only be 10 or $15 if there's places left. Um, and uh, yeah, so she's just she's just a wealth of knowledge. So this year I'm going to Art Hillier. Ah. So she's doing two workshops. She's done it for the last couple of uh, uh, seasons. She she met Wendy, I think her name is the the lady who now owns this beautiful historic garden up in Macedon, and um, and they met. And you know, because it's full of these extremely old exotic trees, it carries a really diverse range of fungi. So oh, would, yes. because you've got so many fungi that have particular <laughs> associations with different trees. Death cap and the oak tree, as we all know, <laughs> but, and uh, the fly agaric and just about anything. They, you know, there's a, sort of a feeling that that fly agaric, which is that red mushroom that people see with the little white spots, which if you have a close-up, if you find a nice wet one, the spots actually move around because it's the veil as the mushroom opens up, it actually explodes. Oh, wow. And so you can actually slide the spots around and you won't <laughs> die doing that. Um, don't eat it. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, a wonderful wealth of fungi. So we're going to that one, which is going to be super oh, exciting. Oh, wonderful. So just a really different form. I've been out in the bush with her. I've spent a bit of time on, on the mountain just uh, actually trailing her along behind her, watching her do her work and, you know, picking out different fungi and learning. Um, so, yeah, certainly a bit more rain will be good for mm. gardeners, but also good for the fungi season. Absolutely. Which is good for gardeners. Absolutely. Again, mm. yes. Mm. We've also got to say a very good morning to Lindsay. Paul, good morning, Lindsay. Good morning, Pam. And, and Lily. Uh, and, of course, you're, you're no stranger to 3CR. You have been here before, but you were, you were explaining to me before the show started that you are wearing... A, Several hats this morning. <laughs> um, primarily, of course, um, you're here this morning because you're um, a member of the Growing Friends 
out at uh, Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne, which of course means just one thing, that the autumn sale is on next weekend. Yes, it is. And would you like to give me, would you like me to give you some details? Absolutely. Right, friends. Good morning, everybody. Well, the Royal Botanic Gardens friends of the Botanic Gardens are having their autumn sale next weekend. So that's Saturday, the 28th of April from 10 till 4. And it also goes on on Sunday, 29th of April from 10 till 3. Please bring your bags. That's quite no a good No bags thing. provided. No bags. Or there are, but please bring thing, things if yes. you have them. Yes. Do you want people to bring shopping bags to give you? Do you need? Well, do you that's, need? Al- that's always helpful. Yeah, that's bring some helpful. extra plastic bags that, if you've got them lying around. That's lying always around. helpful. Mm. Now, to get to the Friends, it's in the lawn area outside the glass house. So come in through gate E. And this year, the entry tent is going to be quite close to the entrance at gate E, Ah. whereas in the past it's been reversed. Okay. So that's where it is. So next weekend, gate E, and I'll give you the Melway reference as well for some people. So it's map 2L, reference C2. Now, the entry is free, so that's a great bonus. (laughs) And if you're a member of the Friends, well, you get a 10% discount. So that's always a bonus as well. There is a catalogue. It's online. So if you go to the Friends of the Royal Botanic Gardens website, um, you'll find the catalogue. So you can download it yourself. Or if you don't have that facility with a computer, we do have a catalogue for sale for $2. Okay. Um, What else can I tell you? Um, I'll also tell you that the next sale, the spring sale, is going to be on on the 20 to the 21st of October. Right. So if you don't, if you miss this one, you've got another one coming up. Um, It is a good time to plant, though. You should get yourself down there next weekend. Absolutely. Absolutely the best time. What time did you say the gates open? Yes, the gates, the 10 o'clock. And so what time does the line start forming Ah, at the gate? That's very very interesting. Sometimes the line is 500 metres long, as you can imagine. (laughs) And the Clivias sell out often in two minutes flat. Really? (laughs) Yes, really. So... um, so please come along and support, because the very special thing about the Growing Friends, and we've got a dedicated lot of people, of 40-odd people, they're all experts in their own sections, uh, not only with their plant knowledge, but their horticultural potential. Um, but we grow plants that are sourced from the Royal Botanic Gardens. Mm. So you really can't get some of these plants from elsewhere. Mm, mm. So that's the exclusivity of, of, of the show. And you can access the catalogue before you get there. So Absolutely. it's not just a, trying to work out what an unusual or rare plant no, might be. No. You can actually Abs- do a bit of research before Ab- you get there. Yeah. If you'd like me to give you some focus plants that people have sent oh. for their sections, yes, might be please. quite interesting. Yeah. Let's whet people's appetite. Let's, let's whet people's appetite. Well, the first thing is, um, Michael, our convener would like to say that they're going to have again the special offer on the Chinese money plant the Pythia peperomoides <laughs> which was sold out in minutes last sale wow. so yes. they've got a, they've got how many enough, have they got? they've got a, a couple of trays this time as well okay. so it's a donald to propagate once everyone works that out yes <laughs> Well, people don't know this money. This plant—it's like it's like tulip mania. This plant has become the the must-grow plant of younger, younger, newer gardeners. Yes, yes. And there was—it became so popular that there was companies that were built just around selling pileas, and people are paying a hundred dollars oh, oh, for a tiny four-inch sort of pot. Yes, exactly. But I, I did have a great wander with. I was wandering around with one of the nursery industry guys uh, twelve months ago. He said, "Oh, don't worry. So and so from Dan's plants or one of the big growers." He's got about a million to drop into Bunnings in the next couple of weeks for a five ninety five, you know. Oh, 
Well, then they're well, going, to, just, they're going yeah. to be a little bit more of the gardens. But anyway, oh, there's no, a couple of special trays for those people who want a Chinese money plant. Um, some of the plants that people are going to promote from their areas, if you're into bulbs, um, the two people who are in charge of that are recommending the Velthemia bracteata, the Veltlily from South mm. Africa, which mm. has green-tipped rosy bells, so that's a very rewarding bulb to have. Tough, lovely, glossy foliage. Yes, just absolutely which is quite, gorgeous. Yeah, yes, really, really, really lovely. Really lovely. Tough down the side of a house or so in a spot you can't even think what you would grow there. No, so yeah. they're promoting that one. Okay. Um, I'm in charge of the native section, and we are going to promote one of the rare and threatened Callistamins. Mm. Oh. Callistamin Ken Morrisonii, which comes from East Gippsland in a very small Restricted area, obviously found by a ranger called Ken Morrison. Mm-hmm. So it's in the rare, our rare and threatened bed at the gardens. And what does it? Can't buy it at the nursery. So it has lovely red flowers, as often calistamins do, um, about one to two metres, not oh, anything fantastic. more than that. So it's one of our rare and threatens, and we have two two boxes of it for sale. So wow. there's something that's a little bit different mm. for people who want perhaps a hedge or a background plant. Mm. Um, so fairly nice so we are promoting that one um the herbs are always extremely popular and usually completely sell out and pamela smith who's in charge of that area um says that winter savory is one of her picks for this year okay it's a great plant. Uh, it's a great little plant it's mm. called saturiga montana procumbens so it's fairly prostrate Small white flowers, which attract bees. So she's promoting that because it's a great herb for winter stews. Absolutely. And And great for the winter bees. And great for the winter bees. So there's one that you could look for if perhaps you haven't got that in your herb garden. Mm. Uh, Perennials. Of course, there's always lots and lots of lovely perennials. The salvias are beautifully out at the moment, as you can imagine. Yes. Um, But they're also promoting francoas, the the bridal wreath which has slender white flowering stems if someone wants something a little bit different in their perhaps their perennial border. Mm. So they're promoting that one. Shrubs, of course, are going for Gardenia thunbergii, which oh, is beautiful yes. perfumed <laughs> flowers, always very popular, yeah. and also from South Africa, as are the Velthemias. Um, succulents. The succulent range is just wonderful at the moment. The colours, the textures... Um, the aloes, of course, flower at this time of the year. Mm-hmm. So aloe malothi, also from South Africa, with its large orange flowers. But it's rather a large aloe. You okay. have to have it at the back of a bed. Yes. It's a structured statement plant. Okay, yes. Um, the other one is also being promoted is aloe socotrino from the Cape Town area, which has orange-red flowers. So there's a couple of different aloes mm, that are being promoted. What else can I tell you? Oh, camellias. We have a lovely range of camellias, and there's a lovely one from China called Camellia Sasanqua, and I don't know whether I'm going to pronounce this Chinese Don't name. worry, there's no rules. No, there's no <laughs> rules. Um, Camellia Sasanqua, Zuling Bazu, has large white flowers, and just the edges are tinged with pink. Oh, lovely. Really rather nice. So that one is for sale, mm. as other lovely camellias are as well. Mm. What Wonderful. else can I promote? Oh, Trees. There's several specimens of the silk floss tree, Saber speciosa, mm. also from great, no, this time great from Brazil. potted plant or yes, structural with yes, the big thorny, beautiful, kind of beautiful flowers. Trunk, really fantastic. Yes, and features quite nicely in the volcano beds at mm. the Royal Botanic yes, Gardens. Yes. Mm. 
So that is, there's a couple of boxes of that. Are they um, seed grown? Are the, the friends collecting the seeds? I'm not quite sure. I'm not in that section, but I'm not mm. quite sure. But they definitely have some nice plants that are this size. Yes. Yeah, so mm. I would imagine they'll fly out the door for oh, people yes. who want something it is structural. Such a, it's such a great mixture. Like it, it really caters to plant interests of all types. Yes. Like, uh, you know, from, from people, you know, probably younger gardeners who are interested in that mm. structural foliage sort of um, variety of plants right through to people who perhaps want more specialist, perennial, um, you know, unusual plants for their garden that you really probably need to know what they are to want them. <laughs> no, yeah, I've, just, I've just been to, on a tour of Sri Lanka and there's Ooh. lots of silk floss trees along the sides of the roads and the women collect the kapok from them and you can see little bags of kapok on the side of the road for your pillows and for your, for your mattress, etc. So they're fairly widespread because it is a pan-tropical tree. Yes. So uh, it was interesting to see the balls of fluff hanging off the trees and people collecting it. Yeah, actually seeing <coughs> how those yes. plants are put to use. Yes. We, we know them you know, in our lives, but our lives are so convenient mm, mm. that, you know, you don't need to do these mm. things. But, uh, you know, I mean, I know that I find that a lot of younger gardeners are really interested in some of those things. Again, they want to know how, how to use the plants mm. that we grow. Mm. And, mm. and um, yeah, it's such an exciting thing. I know I've, I've had experiences travelling as well where you just sort of stop and your jaw drops and you look at something that you've known as a garden plant your whole life and suddenly Sadly. you see it's used mm. in a way that mm. you've never thought. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Um, hanging baskets. We have a range of hanging baskets as okay. well. And Ian, who is in charge of that section, is promoting fuchsia bacillari candy bells. It's rather rare and hard to find. Mm. It has beautiful little delicate pink and white flowers. So that's very charming. A fuchsia. A fuchsia. Fantastic. Tiny, tiny little leaves and tiny little flowers. Rather nice in a hanging basket. And, of course, we have a wonderful range of begonias for sale as well. And begonia ever-flowering red is full out at the moment. Always a nice plant for either in the garden or in a pot by your front door. Or actually, you can also grow it in a hanging basket. Mm. And that hybrid cane flowers all year round. So it's quite a good plant for beginners who want to get into begonias. They are such good plants. You know, you can grow them just about anywhere. I grow one in the hallway. Yes, <laughs> you know, yes, I mean, they're well, that well, versatile. Well, that, no, no, you know, it's, versatile. I yes. mean, as a group of plants, as yeah. you say, that to get started with, fantastic. So those are just some of the some of the plants that are being focused, but there's plenty more interesting plants <laughs> oh, as well. Oh, I'm sure. And, Lindsay, what we really should uh, remind listeners is that all the proceeds go back to the garden. Absolutely. Yes. Everything of this money goes to the friends and then whatever the projects the gardens want to promote like the Fern Gully, the new well-being garden, all of those that money goes into projects within the gardens mm. so if you come along and buy some plants you actually are supporting the gardens absolutely, mm. yes, no, very worthwhile mm. wonderful Okay, um, I might just get to some of our community announcements because there are things uh, taking place even though it is now autumn time there's plenty happening First up, um, I will mention uh, Open Gardens Victoria have got uh, three Goldfields Gardens happening uh, this weekend. Uh, I did mention these last week. Hedgehogs, uh, which is at 60 Hagues Road in Barkers North. Belleville, which is at uh, 26 to 28 Market Street in Denoli. And Sally's Garden at 43 Steen Street in Kennington, which is a suburb of Bendigo. They're all open 10 through until 4.30 today. Cost adults $8 per garden, students $5 per garden, children under 18 are free. 
Uh, at Hedgehogs, there'll be garden owner talks, how to build a pizza oven at 10.30 and at 2.30. There'll be morning and afternoon tea there. At Belleville, there'll be quality district wines for sale by the glass. Uh, and there'll be a Tiny Towns Arts Trail, which is an open house of artist studios, gallery spaces and rarely open buildings taking place at Denoli and other local towns. And finally, at Sally's Garden, there'll also be morning and afternoon tea available. So they're all up in the goldfields area. Okay, uh, a reminder too to listeners that uh, today is the second day of the Fernie Creek Horticultural Society's Autumn Show. Uh, Fernie Creek Hort Society, of course, is at 100 Hilton Road in Sassafras. Now, it's running from 10 o'clock this morning through until 4 o'clock this afternoon, and um, they'll be... Um, <coughs> uh, they're, uh, they're featuring hydrangeas, autumn foliage, proteas, um, autumn flowering bulbs, uh, and uh, there'll be uh, guided garden walks as well in the wonderful garden up there at Fernie Creek. Um, free on-site parking, um, and uh, as I say, that's all happening today, running right through until 4 o'clock this afternoon. Now, also, this is for uh, next weekend. Um, the Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group is having its regular autumn native plant and book sale. Now, this is taking place next Saturday, the 28th of April, 10 a.m. through to 4 p.m. at the Senior Citizen Centre, which is at 903 Main Road in Eltham. There's free entry for that one. There'll be uh, tube stock to advance plants, indigenous and grafted stock, and books on related subjects as well, all at great prices. So that's at um, the uh, Senior Citizen Centre, 903 Main Road in Eltham there, free entry next Saturday, 10 through till 4 o'clock. Now, coming up down at uh, Cranbourne, uh, and this is uh, their new um, all-day habitat gardening workshop. Now, the workshop is exploring the special relationships between plants and animals of all kinds that can help to make your garden really come alive. Uh, now, it's taking place next Sunday, the 29th of April, 9.30 till 4. It's being held in the Australian Garden Auditorium at Cranbourne Gardens. Now, uh, <coughs> for members of the uh, Friends Group, $60. Non-members, $75. Students, $30. Bookings are essential to book. Uh, you go to their website, which is www.rbgfriendscranbourne, all one word, .org.au. And uh, you can click on that and book in for that one. And uh, there'll be quite a few speakers there. Um, our good friend A.B. Bishop is going to be the keynote speaker on that one because she's just actually finished writing a book on uh, Habitat Gardens. So uh, she will be, uh, as I say, providing the uh, keynote address. There'll be also Bronnie Swart, uh, Swartz, who's a horticulturalist at RBGV in Cranbourne, and she has a deep interest in and love of insects. So she'll be taking... Uh, people on an exciting journey of how, as gardeners, we can cater for these important but often maligned small to minute animals. Emily Bowman uh, as a landscape designer, and uh, she will be um, talking about uh, working with water, creating soaks and swales in the garden, which is, of course, great value to wildlife. And our very good friend Roger Elliott, 
um, is going to be talking about uh, creating habitat in small spaces and also about uh, creating habitat gardens for lizards. So that's all taking place uh, next Sunday the 29th. Um, if you'd like uh, to find out more details, you can give Roger Elliott a phone call. His number is 8774-2483. That's 8774-2483. Now, uh, I should also mention, lastly, that um, Open Gardens Victoria uh, are opening um, two gardens next weekend. Uh, now, these in, are in South Gippsland at a little township called Lock. Uh, now, there's two gardens that I mentioned. The first garden is Lockchester. It's a European-style garden with an amazing golden elm that sweeps you into the garden through a traditional lynch gate at the entrance. And there are beautiful autumn trees and garden beds bordered by box hedges. The other garden is Wits End, which is only minutes away. It's a very pretty cottage garden surrounding an 1890s home. A magnificent 100-year-old eucalyptus, uh, Streslechii, stands over a selection of deciduous trees, while an ornamental pear tree walk and a rose garden have all been added to uh, more recently. Now, the address of both of these, Lochester, is at 9 Roy Street, Lock, and Wits End is at 12 Queen Street in Lock. Uh, they're open both Saturday and Sunday of next weekend, 28th, 29th of April, 10 till 4.30 on both days. Entry is $8 per garden. Students, $5 per garden. Children under 18 are free. And there will be morning and afternoon tea at Lochester. Now, once again, our very good friends at Open Gardens Victoria have given us uh, two free double passes, one to Lochester and one to Wits End. If you'd like to uh, go for a drive uh, down to South Gippsland next weekend to have a look at these gardens, do give us a call now and uh, you can receive one of those two free double passes. Um, they will be posted out to you. The number to ring in is 9. 419-0155. That's 94190155 if you'd like to grab one of those two free double passes for next weekend. Okay, well, it's more than time that I also uh, said a very good morning to David De- De- uh, DeAngelis. Morning, David. Hey there, I'm not, not actually David. Unfortunately, you can't make it in this Oh, morning. I was um, expecting David. Yeah, <laughs> my name's Alex and I'm also from the Mullum Mullum Festival. Okay, <laughs> well, welcome aboard, Alex. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, now, uh, Mullum Mullum Festival only takes place once every two years, doesn't it? Yeah, well, uh, usually, usually once a year, um, but we've had a little bit of a break between our last festival in 2015 and this year, but we're really excited to be uh, back and, and providing a whole range of activities and walks and uh, presentations over the next couple of weekends. Fantastic. All right, now, day one, it starts 28th of April, which is Saturday of next week, and you're starting with a, a walk and talk spotlighting at 6.30. Now, that yes, sounds like yes. fun. No, no, most definitely, and I think it's going to be one of our more popular ones this mm-hmm. year. I know um, Ray Gibson always puts on a great presentation, and, uh, of course, it's always very exciting for people of all ages to go out with torches in the bush and <laughs> uh, have a look around. Yeah. And I'm sure children would love to go to that one as well. Yes, most definitely. So what sort of critters are you going to be trying to spot? 
Um, look, I possums, think, obviously. Yeah, possums are probably the main one, and I'm sure if there's any other any others that pop up, um, they'll be a nice surprise for people as well. But it's all it's all a lot of fun, I think. Just yeah. for those of us, um, can you explain a little bit what Mullum Mullum Festival is and sure. and where and why it's happening? Sure. So the the festivals first started back in 1995, and it had grown out of there was a, a lot of community opposition to uh, the proposed extension of the Eastern Freeway through the Mullum Mullum Creek Valley. And a group of local residents thought, how best to show, you know, the beautiful and diverse sort of environments of the area than by running a, a series of guided walks through the area. And so the festival sprang out of that. And um, even to this day, we still run a lot of guided walks uh, through the valley and uh, showing, you know, new generations of citizens and community members uh, everything that the Mullum Creek Valley has to mm-hmm. offer. That's wonderful. And you, you have such a wonderful, um, diverse group of, of mm. people to lead some of these walks and talks, don't you? Most definitely. We're very, very thankful to all, everyone who's coming along and presenting for us. A lot of them, you know, they're all giving up their time to come and just uh, tell, you know, tell members of the community all about, you know, their areas of expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, so over over the um, festival, we've got over 20 expert-led presentations and walks and talks um, on, yeah, a whole range of environmental and ecological uh, topics. Well, how about uh, letting listeners know just... Uh some of the range of um, talks that are available. Yeah, sure. Um, some of the highlights that uh, I've sort of picked out personally, um, we've got uh, Professor David Caroli, um, who's going to be presenting on climate change and you know looking at the effects in the Mullum Mullum especially. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew Skiok on the sounds of the natural environment. The sounds. Um, yes. That's yes. fantastic. Um, he's, he's done a lot of work in, you know, lis- encouraging people to listen and, you know, take a step back and just appreciate the, you know, the beauty of um, the, the sounds of our environment. How, how big is the area? Like, how much of an area is the Mullum Mullum, yeah. Mullum is, yeah. is this scope covering? So, the, the, the creek itself runs over the municipalities of Whitehorse, Manningham and Maroondah. Oh, wow. Um, so, we're really thankful to have support of all three of those councils in putting on the festival every year. Mm-hmm. And um, we do try and, you know, move around a few different places. So our base, especially on opening day, is at Yarrandarren Reserve in Mitcham. Yep. And we're also out in uh, East Doncaster and Donvale um, on, on other days as well. And these are areas that I guess, as you said before, so many more people are moving into. And so mm-hmm. whilst you, know, you feel like you might have had this community sort of um, understanding mm. 15 years ago or 20 years ago that it's you just need to keep revisiting and bringing more people into understanding how important it is. Most definitely. And this year we're also trying something a bit different. We've, um, we're running a couple of introductory walks on our opening day with Mandarin and Arabic interpreters. So our new wow, arrivals to the area can uh, you know, get a bit of an introduction to the local environment and uh, gain a bit of an appreciation mm. of you know, what's, mm. what's in all of our backyards. Mm. Yeah. Um, just looking at, at some of the... Um, the quite diverse topics that are being covered, um, mosses and liverworts, uh, mm. one, Geomorph- geomorphology, which will be fantastic, um, things like um, water bugs, mm. yes. a whole, a whole um, walk and talk <laughs> looking at water bugs, which, um, again, I think kids would love to find out about. Um, conservation status of the flora uh, within the, the valley, um, Urban platypuses, threats and challenges. Mm-hmm. I mean, you really cover some amazing topics. Yeah. I think it's really fabulous. But the other aspect of the mm. festival is that you always um, tie it in uh, with the local Koori community, don't you? Yeah, that's right. And our opening day on Sunday, the 29th of April, is where, really where we focus in on that. Um, so we've got a day's work of, worth of activities at Yarrandaran Reserve in Mitcham. Um, and in the afternoon, we've got a, a range of activities, uh, musical performances, uh, 
um, Aboriginal craft workshops and um, a screening of the apology as well as a discussion about, you know, we've recently marked 10 years mm. since the apology yes. and, uh, mm. you know, the work that still needs to be done. And, um, you know, we've always, we've always put on a good spread of food as well, so I'm <laughs> sure to be a, a lot of fun for everyone. Absolutely. Mm. Now, for most of these, um, for the, these sessions, it's simply a gold coin donation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we really appreciate a $2 donation from um, participants for, for our walks and talks. Um, you know, we're, we're all, we're non-for-profit. It's all community um, volunteer run, 100% volunteer power. And mm. um, uh, any anything that, you know, um, helps just keep the, co- we keep our costs low, but, um, you know, any donations are always really appreciated. Well, I think that's absolutely fantastic mm. because it makes it so accessible mm. for the mm. whole community. Most definitely. So how do people find out where they should be going and where they're heading to? Head to the, the opening day, it sounds like, and you get lots of information about the different things that are going to be running over the weeks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, most definitely. And we'll be there across the festival to provide people with um, brochures or um, other information if they like. And, of course, you can always go online. So our website is mullumullumfestival.org.au or you can find us on Facebook at Mullum Festival. Mm-hmm. And you'll be able to see the full brochure as well as some uh, other events and information up on both of those, uh, both the website and the Facebook page. And do you still need volunteers? We would love volunteers. <laughs> <laughs> we always, always need if people get so fired up from listening to this. Yeah, I mean, no. it, it is a nice way to do things, though, to volunteer, and you might get to go along on some of the walks that you mm. were planning on perhaps yeah. going to, but you might be there to collect the $2 and, um, and make sure everyone stays with the guide. I mean, it's a great way to get to experience different places. Most definitely. And, you know, for someone like myself, um, I'm, I've still got a, a lot to learn about the environment, and so um, it's, it's exciting to be involved with the, the Mullah Mullah festival and you know meeting the people behind it who've been who've been putting it together and um you know playing that role myself this year mm-hmm. and um also you know uh, getting to see all the yeah everything that the Mullum Creek Valley has to offer and mm-hmm. I think you can apply it no matter no matter where you live yes um, exactly there's there's skills and there's knowledge that you can acquire that you can yeah you can use wherever you are and probably mm-hmm. also useful I know that we we talk to different people in the community often about little projects they're doing to try and you know retain a bit of mm-hmm. open space that it's maybe under threat of development, all those mm. sorts of things. I'm sure coming and seeing something like this festival might give other municipalities or other community groups great ideas for how they might engage their local community with the natural environment. Yeah, definitely. And we've got, you know, even just before, you know, talking about the wide range of events, there's so many experts and so many committed volunteers and groups out there that, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a really important thing and it's great to see that there's so many people who've um, got a commitment to it in mm. the area. Mm. Yeah. How did you first get involved with it, Alex? Um, I met one of the committee members through through another through another event that we were planning together, and, okay. um, and yeah, Monique, and she invited me along. And um, as soon as I came along and met everyone else on the committee, I thought this is where I want to be. You know, yeah. it's it's a, it's a lot of fun putting it together. It's a lot of hard work over many months. Oh but, yes, um, it's 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 a great bunch of people to be working with, and um, it's a, it's it's really valuable. Um, you know, time to be spending with people, and mm. of course, we're all looking forward to seeing how the festival unfolds over the next two weekends. Mm. Absolutely. Are there are there topics that you covering that have been sort of driven by the community participants in the past? Are there things that people say, oh, we'd love to learn about this? Or, you know, how do you work out what what people want to know or or how they're engaged? Yeah, so we always look at what what events in the past have been popular, what areas people might have raised with us that they'd like to see in the future. And then, of course, we we, we reach out. We've got massive networks of uh, experts and um, others who, who, you know, can provide suggestions on topics. Um, of course, uh, the, the climate change um, one in particular, we're, we're in anticipating to be quite popular, especially with um, Professor David Caroli running the session. Mm, yes. Um, 
but uh, yeah, there's 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 always um, feedback from people on different bits and pieces, and we're lucky that we're able to provide some specialised sessions mm. on, so people can get gain an understanding of something they're really passionate about. And and such a diverse catchment, I guess mm. you've got opportunities for telling so many different stories. I, I assume it yes. it does everything that valley. You know, yeah, there's yeah. every story possible connected in that in that huge yeah. area. And Alex, do you have any little group that might propagate some of your indigenous plants from that area, so people can put them in their own gardens? Do you have um, any of that sort of activity? Yeah, no, um, we don't have anything of that specific nature on offer this year, but we've definitely, we can definitely provide people with information about local nurseries and groups uh, okay. that would be able to link, link people up mm. with, with, with those most definitely. Because people mm. seem to like to propagate the, or plant mm. the Indigenous plants of their area down. Mm. Yes, mm. yes, and, it, and it's great to see as well, as even if you're driving around, around the streets, to, to be seeing more and more people mm. doing that with mm. their gardens. Mm. Yes. Um, I notice also you've got a presentation uh, entitled Fabulous Fungi, what they do for our bushland. So there you go, Millie. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a a topic that's... It's, people are fascinated, I know it. People are fascinated to learn that, you know, mostly that's what bandicoots, wallabies, all these mm. guys, that's what they're eating at yes. this time of the year, you know, and, and none of us know about it. Mm. And yeah. that session's being run by Dr Sapphire McMullen-Fisher and um, mm. I know she's a really passionate uh, about about the topic and she uh, even sent us through some photos when we're in the planning process and you just you can, you can tell straight away that uh, this is, you know, something that she's really passionate about and she's really excited about sharing, sharing that passion with a lot of other people in the area who I'm sure will find it a fascinating session. Mm. 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 I'm also pleased that you're um, you're doing a walk and talk on invasive species because yes. that is so good to point out to uh, to people just which plants are um, are threats to our bushland and yeah. are invading and taking over at a great rate because. Um, you know, if people don't see it for themselves and see just how much they're taking over, they don't realise what a threat it is to our to our native um, flora. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we're really lucky to have Steve Matthews along. Of course, he's right. got a long association with the the Invasive Species Council, and um, yes. he's a great friend of the festival. So yeah, we're really excited to have Steve presenting again this year. Fantastic. Okay, so um, again, if people want to get hold of the program, which is mm-hmm. how I got hold of it, I simply went to the website. Can you give out the address again and yeah sure so our website is mullamullamfestival.org.au mm-hmm. um, or you can also find us on facebook at mullamullam festival excellent so it's it's running through um uh 28th and 29th and then mm-hmm. again the following weekend 5th and 6th yes yeah, yes that's right over, so yeah. two full weekends um, to be able to catch up on it all. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And um, we'd, we'd love to see as, um, yeah, as many people come out, you know, as many activities as you'd like to come along to. We're really excited to see the community coming out and um, seeing, seeing what the Mullamullam Creek Valley has to offer. Mm. And as I say, it's only a $2 donation to, to go along and join in on, on some of these fantastic talks. So I think that's really wonderful. Well yeah, done, David. <laughs> I'm yeah. Alex. Um, yeah, okay, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about it. Uh, but it is high time we opened up our, our uh, talk back calls. If you'd like to phone in this morning and ask a gardening question, we'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155. Or this morning we have Robin on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Robin, the number is 94198377. Now, Millie, I'm, as you know, heading off overseas next week. <laughs> Um, so this will be my last Sunday morning for five weeks. Um, 
But uh, you're also heading overseas later in the year. Yeah, it's a little you way are. off. It's, I have trouble. I have trouble thinking three days ahead. <laughs> to be truthful, I wake up and I deal with the week or the day that I've got to deal with. But yes, I am. I'm heading to the Italian lakes and <gasps> Tuscany. And Cinque Terre, which I still feel silly saying it because I, until you're in Italy, you, you know, those hard seas, you sort of, um, and then we travel up through Nice and Provence as well. So about 20 days, I think, seeing some of these gardens. Pam, you've been to them. I've never been to this mm. part of the world. So I'm, I'm really excited and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a big learner and I'm a big looker. Like, so I, I, I will do lots of preparation, but I'm actually just really looking forward to going to these places that are so famous and so revered and actually experiencing them for myself and hopefully with a big group. I know we've got a good group already, but I'd like quite a big group because yes. I think it'll be good fun. Yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, so just, um, pretty excited actually to go to a, a place that, you know, unique in climate, unique in history, unique in plants and, the culture around growing mm, and I absolutely. think there'll also be plenty of gelati is my feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> well, you're, you're visiting some wonderful gardens up around the Italian lakes, um, you know, really beautiful gardens um, and some of them very famous like uh, Villa Carlotta, Villa Balbienello. Um, of course, on the gorgeous little islands as well. And the Bella, um, yeah. yes. Yeah, and which everyone, I'm sure, has seen a postcard of it. Mightn't have realised which one it was. Yes. But, um, as soon as they see it, they're oh, yeah. This one. I think I mean, I think that's the beautiful thing about going to see. You've you've very kindly brought your gorgeous gardens to the Italian Lakes book in for me to have a have a bit of a look at, and um, you get you you get these fantastic iconic photographs of a garden you know we've, we've all seen it's like traveling to Uluru for the first time we've all seen images of of that place but the second you're actually standing there looking at it it's a completely different experience mm. and there's things that you feel and hear like talk about sounds before you know there's 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 things that you cannot get from from a postcard or even exactly. the most intricate book the feeling of being in a garden and I know it's you know, for me personally as a gardener, I, I the more and more I experience other people's gardens and, you know, working <coughs> also for Gardening Australia and spending a lot of my time with people in personal gardens as opposed to designed gardens, you know, most most often that's what, what I'm experiencing. I, I just, those gardens that are created and something like Carlotta that's created for, you know, there's ego there and then there's oh, gift and there's like, there's but then there's botanical fascination that's and there's right. all of these different things that people grow plants for or choose plants for you know I just think being in people's gardens for me it's much more about being in them than looking at them Mm. and uh, and so I'm very very excited to um, we fly into Milan and then head straight up to to the lakes and spend a bit of time there Um, we'll be I think we're on a coach for most of the time there's some boat travel of course around around the waterways Um, but very very comfortable travel with Travel Right International Um, and uh, we did a a fantastic wildflower tour last year in Western Australia and just had a hoot and I want people who are a bloody hoot again (laughs) I had some 3CR with me which was uh, which was just such fantastic fun and um, you know I think I think uh, there's nothing like watching um, people, you know, jumping logs in the bush. You know, the enthusiasm with which my crew got, you know, was jumping over burnt logs to get out and look at an orchid or, um, you know, I assume we'll have to be a little bit, you know, more ruly. What's that? Is that the opposite of unruly? <laughs> <laughs> in Italy at some of these more prestigious gardens. But I think it'll be 
just as much fun and such a such a contrast to that experience oh, of gosh, the yes. wild garden. Yes. Um, but going going into it. But I, I, you know, having said that, I'm sure my nose will be pressed up against the glass in the bus, and we might have to pull over and do a little bit of roadside <laughs> looking as well, because those uncultivated places are often, to me, mm, as interesting mm. as the really really that's uh, right. The wildflower verges, the wildflower verges that you can see. Absolutely, in mm. late summer. I mean, I, I just think that it's going to be the food will no doubt be extraordinary at this time of the year. It's you know we're going to be be eating gorgeous provincial food, mm. you know, heading up to Tuscany. Uh, I mean, really, you know, we'll, we'll be hitting the mar- every market we can find um, outside of our itinerary, I think, um, to see what the local places have to offer. Mm. I, I'm very much, I, you know, I, 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 I really love to experience a place and um, I'm, I'm not so interested in eating in the hotel and, you know, staying, staying in for the confines. So I know, and, you know, I know that um, certainly there's always a few people on tour who, who are similar and, uh, you know, you get your hours rest at the end of the day, you'll have a shower and you're ready to go again, you know. That's so, right. Um, and go and experience sort of the other side of, 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 of travel and, and of culture, which, mm. is, which is what feeds mm. into gardens. So, yeah, just absolutely excited mm. and um, can't wait. You're going to love Cinque Terre because that means five lands or five villages. There's no cars allowed at all. Fantastic. It's so rugged. Mm. You go in on a little train, um, <laughs> but there are also um, the opportunity, if, if the weather's calm, to actually see the villages from a boat, from, from out at sea, and just... Just absolutely stunning environment. I, yeah. You're, you're going to love it. I think the water it was funny. I was Last night I was making, I don't know if people um, have heard much about the slow fish movement that's happening in, in Victoria at the moment with the shutting down of the fisheries within Port Phillip Bay. There's a lot of discussion happening. There's a couple of sardine fishery, young you know, families that have fished there for sustainably for, for a really long time. But anyway, I'm, I'm preparing my Port Phillip sardines last night, which are absolutely fantastic at the moment. Seven dollars fifty to feed three people, you know, it's pretty easy. And uh, and I was I was thinking about the gardens. I was thinking about being in these some of these fishery villages, and yes. I just my heart just was absolutely excited. I was just sort of making my own sardines and thinking about the culture and those places. And you know, I think Australia is such an old place. But our culture, you know, our, our colonial culture is so young. And I that's often right. have that experience, you know, first time I went to Europe, I'm like, oh, that's 600 years. And then I think, oh, we've got stuff that's happening in this country that's been happening for 60,000 years, yes. you know. It's yes, just, I know. But, um, but wonderful to experience some of these really beautiful old gardens mm. and old, old villages and old sort of cultural places. Mm. Millie, are you going to Pisa? Uh, I don't think don't we are think going so. to Pisa, no. I just say because there's no. a very beautiful old botanic garden in Pisa, you know. Well, I probably will head there maybe as a side trip. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't planned the trip around the trip yet. <laughs> but um, no, so I'm just excited. People want to come with me. Please do. Um, it'll be really, really good fun. Um, you know, I take everything uh, <clears throat> quite seriously and not seriously at all, I guess. <laughs> and I, I think that travel is such a great experience. And with a nice big group, you can look after each other. You can help each other sort of understand things from different perspectives, which is which is the greatest thing about travelling with a group mm. is that you, you you know, and I loved it about my group last year is, you know, what you might think about someone the first moment you meet them. By the, by the time you've, you've finished travelling with them, you know, you've really gotten to know their real story, not the one that they tell you in the first, that we all tell everyone in the first ten minutes that we meet them. Yes. That's, this is the story that this is my story, you know, but actually spending time and going into these places, it, it always promotes 
that moment where they might tell you something else about their life or something else about what they think or something else about their own experience and their own garden. So I think it'll just be uh, a tremendous trip and um, full of lots of learning, lots of good wine, lots of good gelati, <laughs> lots of good gardens, uh, no doubt lots of jokes. I'll have to uh, brush up on my gardening jokes. Which I'll try and tell at least one every day. <laughs> I'll tell a good one later. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, look, should be a fantastic trip. Now, if people want to look at the uh, full itinerary, they can jump online and go to travelright.com.au forward slash garden dash tours, and that will bring it up. If you just gurgle my name and uh, Italian tour or travel tour, that garden all... tour, it'll it'll turn up. Or you can, of course, ring. There's a, um, two offices in Melbourne, but you can ring. It's a toll-free number, which is... One eight hundred six three zero three four three, and again it's Travel Right International, and um, yeah, have a chat to one of the team there. They'll give you all the ins and outs, and um, and uh, I think that it's sort of supported all the way from from Australia. So um, you'll you'll sort of travel as a group from Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Brisbane or Perth, um, and and then uh, and meet us in Milan, and um, yeah, and then we'll just go and have some fun. And I should say, travel right is spelled R-I-T-E. Yes, it is. Yeah, otherwise, people might be <laughs> typing in the yes, wrong. No, but look, I, it, the, so it's easy to find things now, isn't it? If it's if it's kind of clear and simple. Yes. Um, but yeah, come come to Italy and France with me. It'll be really fun. Fantastic. <laughs> Okay, if you'd like to uh, join us this morning, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're running through until 9.15, so you've got uh, just under an hour to uh, jump on the phones and give us a call. The number to speak to the team on air, we have uh, Millie Ross, we have Lindsay Poor, and we also have Alex from the Mullum Mullum Festival. The number is 94190155. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Robin on the outside line, her number is 94198377. Um, we have a, Lindsay, we have a, a query. Um, are the Ciba for sale flowering? No, they're not flowering at the moment. Okay. And how many years do they take to flower? Um, well, I'm not quite sure about that, but I What's think they don't, question? I don't think they flower very quickly. Not young. Not young. No. So use it as a structural plant to begin with. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, they are so dramatic in their form that really, I mean, I had one in a, a big old rubbish bin for years, a gal rubbish bin that I dragged from garden to garden, and it didn't really get much bigger because I was growing it in that potted, um, confine and it never flowered, but I'm sure in the garden I saw one actually flowering in um, in in Mooney Ponds Parklands a couple of weeks ago, and I looked at it and I couldn't re- I couldn't work out what it was, you know, because it was such an unusual thing to see flowering. But um, the actual yeah. notes in the catalogue, if I might say them, mm, what they are. Sure. Um, it's a tree one to eighteen meters, so it's fairly large. One to eighteen. One to eighteen meters. Um, <laughs> it's a big range. It's rather large. Um, a subtropical tree with spiky green trunk and pale green pointed leaflets. Flowers vary from pink to rose to purple, so you can get that mm. variation. The early growth is fast mm. and straight, slowly developing into an umbrella canopy-shaped tree. Mm. Okay. Flowers in the autumn, it likes full sun and a moist, well-drained soil. Mm. So I don't think it's going to flower when it's very, very young. No, because mm. it's putting all that energy into, into growth. growth. Yeah. Yes. Um, very spectacular flower, though. And oh, uh, like an orchid. Yeah, almost like, like an like orchid. Like an orchid. Um, yeah, well, that's why I sort of, I, w- I was uh, truthfully, I was looking out the back of the bolo 
uh, toilet window with someone at a wedding going, what's that? <laughs> you know, we could see it. And I, you know, initially I was like, well, that's about Hinia, but that is not. You know, the two of them flowering side by side were very, very similar in their form and their and their look, but it was... And uh, if yeah, people come to Botanic Gardens, we can direct them to the trees that are growing. There's a beautiful one growing down by the terrace D rooms. Mm-hmm. It's rather old. And there's some more younger ones in a circle within the volcano precinct. Sam, and how many so, nurseries can you go to where you go, can I just... Have you got a hundred-year-old example of this I can have a look at? So we can direct you to where they're growing (laughs) and you can make it your special treat. Yep, (laughs) absolutely. Now, I should ask you, Lindsay, um, I know in the past, um, at one, in the early days, it was um, cash only for these sales, but I think you've got credit card facilities. Absolutely. There's both. There's both. So don't worry about if you don't have cash, there's both. Okay, good. People can spend up. And remember, it's free entry. Yep, absolutely. Yes, and if you're a member, you get a 10% discount. <laughs> that's always a bonus. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, that's wonderful. Okay, as I said, we'd love to hear from you this morning. If you'd like to ask a gardening question or make a comment on anything we're discussing, the number is 94190155 or to speak to Robin on the outside line, 94198377. Millie, you've brought in a range of amazing things. Let's chat. One one thing I wanted to talk about this morning was how great it is being a gardener that you you really do see something you haven't seen before just all the time or you learn something you don't know. What I've learned this morning is this is a very noisy thing to bring into the radio. (laughs) Every time I've tried to move it, to do anything with it. I have brought this in before. I brought it in last year, which was the first time I grew it. Um, But one of the things I was was interested in talking about as an idea is why people grow things. You know, why people – like you you would learn so much about – um, you know, working for the growing friends on that day about what people want, why they why they choose certain things to grow. Do you grow it because it's really fascinating? Do you grow it because you want to eat it? Do you grow it because it's indigenous to the landscape and you think that's really important? You know, there's all these different reasons. But um, some things I grow just because they're bloody fun. <laughs> and I think that that's a message that I try and put out into when I talk to groups is that sometimes it's okay just to grow something for fun. You know, I've 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 had people heckle me for for growing an indigenous plant in the region because that person didn't like that plant. Yeah, really, really funny story. <laughs> in front of a hundred people, I'm talking about planting the tree violet. Melasitis is my little front hedge. It's prickly. You know, good to stop people walking up onto the veranda. It's got a lovely fragrant flower in winter and, and then it has a berry that all the birds and the lizards like and it, it grows naturally 100 metres from my house and this woman literally, without even being able to control herself in front of 100 people, yelled, the people of your town will hate you. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is fantastic. Because my first talk of the day had been talking about not judging other people's gardens. (laughs) And I was like, you didn't hear anything I said, did you? And it was purely because she's a farmer and she had trouble getting rid of it in her paddock and it comes up and it's got prickles. And, you know, but in her experience, it had been a terrible plant for them to manage because they're trying to do something else with their garden. But anyway, I digress. But some things I grow just for fun. And... My corn experiments of the last couple of years have been just that. I, I, you know, it's one of these plants that really, 10 years ago in this country, there was sweet corn and there was, you know, so there was hybrid sweet corn and there was probably some, uh, a couple of heirloom varieties of corn. But really the offer, offerings of corn to grow in this country were really, really slim. I think it must have been here, but no one was sharing it or growing it really. And over the last few years, I've started finding all of this amazing seed for different corn. So in my right hand, I have the tiniest cob of corn that you could ever imagine (laughs) other than baby corn so it's bigger than baby corn Um, and this is actually a little 
blue popping corn. So I handed one of these cobs to the cameraman who was filming with me the other day to take to his little girl because he showed her the footage of my chickens when he shot that story and then he went, oh, she was so amazed. I said, well, take her this. And then next time she comes, he comes, I'll probably give him a blue egg to take home from the chickens. So, you know, (laughs) keep her guessing. But it's a little popping corn um, that I've been growing. And in my left hand is this amazing cob of... Look, it actually goes quite black as it dries off, but again, it is a corn, which is, um, well, a maize, really, um, which is probably 30 centimetres long, this cob. This is probably one of the longest that I've got, and um, this is a, a type of maize. I mean, talk about an old crop that's been grown for, I don't know how many thousands and thousands and thousands of years um, but um, just a really amazing black blue cob of corn and mm. it's funny because I'll often just hand this to people who aren't gardeners when they're around the place or people come over for dinner and I've got it hanging in the kitchen you know and they're often really drawn to it and so for me that's a really really great tool too to get people interested in plants and interested in difference but this corn is actually one that I think because I got it from a, another seed saver in a packet of seed with no information <laughs> I think it's actually one of the corns that traditionally used for making a Mexican kind of brothy soup. All right. um, and it has to go through this process which is called nixtamalization. So, you know, to make it edible, it's hard as a rock. You couldn't, couldn't steam that and eat that. It, it goes hard before it even really, cut, you know, before it's ripe. It's a really hard corn. And nixtamalization means you have to actually crush it, soak it with lime. Like There's lime. this huge... Huge process to actually prepare it for food. I'm growing my stocks and I'm hoping that next year I'm going to plant this out in a field somewhere as a huge maize because Ah. it is the tallest, most beautiful stalk you've ever seen in your life um, and then I'll have enough seed that it would warrant us all getting together and nixtamalising it because <laughs> we might get more than one tortilla <laughs> is my thought or more than one feed but look I'm just really interested in why people grow things and you know, part of my job at Gardening Australia is you know convincing not even convincing but always looking for those different ways that I might get someone interested in growing so I might be just showing you a story about I don't know, indoor plants is a really good example and that's why I brought the avocado in. This is an avocado pip that germinated, really good little house plant in a bright, bright spot. People are so interested in, in, in house plants but they're paying exceedingly large amounts of money for plants that are a doddle to propagate. If you can find a friend with one, you can grow one and you'll have one, you know, so there's this kind of commercial market attached to it but you can equally have an avocado pip growing inside and have a great house plant. So I just and I'm, people wouldn't realise that you could have an avocado as a house plant. Yeah, absolutely. That's just the change of emphasis it on is, what you can do. At, at the moment, I'm working on a story. I'm going to film it. I've wanted to film it for over a year. I'm going to film it hopefully at the end of next week, which is about Australian plants indoors. Um, it's kind of like a, my, my colleague, you know, one of my one of our team who who's new this year, he pitched this story idea at his interview and I was like, mate, you are in. This is something that I've wanted to do for a long time because, he, you know, it's, he said to me, it's like the, the needle was taken off the record on indoor plants and what's suitable for growing indoors in 1974. And <laughs> we haven't really explored new plants. It's great because a lot of those tropical, subtropical species are coming back. But, you know, don't forget Australia has a lot of those plants. Mm. The maidenhair fern, it's growing wild in, you know, probably in Mullum I would suggest. You know, it's one of the world, it was the most important indoor plants, you know. So there are plenty of plants to muck around with. I know I've got a carry pine and Margot McDonald has a gorgeous carry pine growing in the northern window in her house. I've also got a brachychiton. I've also ah. got... 
I've also got, um, uh, you know, I've, I've killed a couple of stenocarpus. I've realised they're really suited to it. Maybe not in my environment. I do get very cold, and because I'm not there, sometimes mm. the house is very cold. Yes. Um, but uh, I've killed a couple because they're not as forgiving with the watering. So some of the plants like brachychitons and, and those other things, they have that fleshiness to their foliage and their stem. They can, they can forgive you a little bit. They mm. might drop a few leaves. But the stenocarpus, I've forgotten to water a few times, and that's the firewheel tree. But mm. I know that would be a fantastic plant in the right pot, in the right soil, in the right spot in a house, I think it would be, or in a you know really bright area, walkway into a house, I think it would be a fantastic plant. Well, that's something we should explore with the growing friends. We should start looking at some of our native plants that are suitable for indoors. You should. And, I'm gonna promote, ma- and pr- pr- promoting them as a small section, as, as, as the fern or... But absolutely, and also just experimenting with those things. Because, the, you know, the fact is there is no indoor plant. Exactly. You know, there yep. are begonias that grow on rocky overhangs um, in Taiwan. You know, there are plants that grow in low light areas. There are rainforest trees such as the cowrie mm. um, or, you know, some of those plants that they basically, when their seeds germinate, which often happens really quickly, they sort of have to sit for 50 years until the big tree falls over before they get a chance. They get so the they're light. actually yep. quite suited to growing in contained mm. and slow environments. And then there's also all of those understory plants, which, of course, low light levels mean... Oh, I can experiment with it at home. We have a lot of people coming to the plant sale who now just live in apartments with small balconies. But we have started potting up a few things in little display pots for natives growing on balconies. So the, the, the trend is there. So we could start pursuing the sorts of things we could grow indoors mm. and experimenting with them. Absolutely. And, it, and it, I mean, I think the key things about indoors um, are water is obviously it's a really inconsistent environment. Mm. I mean, I've heard that, you know, Europeans' houses, cold, drastically cold, drastically hot environments, houses are well-built and well-sealed. Aussies live in glorified tents, you know, most of us. My house is. I'm going to renovate it and hopefully fix that. But, you know, they they get very drafty. They're very cold. They get very hot. You know, we don't have that consistent temperature because we're not building our houses to really be that way. So for a plant, it's like, oh, I've been, it's been nice. It's been quite cool all day, but oh, hang on. Whoa, the heat is on. Uh, it's blowing hot air on my foliage. You know, like it's, it's a very inconsistent environment for a plant. So watering is tricky. And, it, you know, creating a, a consistent environment around a plant is tricky. I mean, people will most often with a maidenhair fern grow it in a little puddle of water, a little bit of gravel in the bottom so it's not a sodden root system, but it does have that humidity around humidity. it. So that's that's one of the key things. The other thing that I think is really hard to get right is is when you are bringing plants indoors, and I did this, I had a, I, I, I killed it, I had a fantastic Cissus, the kangaroo vine, which is growing on the fence of the Royal Botanic Gardens as you walk back down towards the city from, obser- um, from the observation gate there. There's this monster of a plant. Well, I had one in my lounge room. It wasn't a monster in my lounge room. It was climbing up the old ladder that's actually a lamp um, in, in the lounge room. I, I barely watered it. And then I watered it twice in two weeks. What the, was I thinking? And it was sitting in a bucket, so I drowned it. That's, you know, you just you do these things. But it had a lovely big fleshy leaf, and I thought, and it's and it can grow in a low light environment. And I thought they are two things that mm. I consider worthy of giving it a go. And it was great. And I'll get another one, and I won't. Well, I might kill it as well. That's what <laughs> happens. You know, <laughs> they're in our care. We ruin them. That's that's a, you know. So I, I just think it's a really it's a great area for us gardeners with a bit more knowledge to start experimenting with because there's a lot of new gardeners who are really interested and 
I don't think Australian plants need to stay in a bush garden. I don't no. think Australian plants are any less or more. I mean, I think they're more in many ways, but um, you know, this this whole new frontier of indoors, and it is that that way of engaging new gardeners. We've got to be honest. People are interested. They have tiny areas. They want plants in the house. They want it for the health reasons, but also they want it because it's bloody cool and it's there's nothing nice. And then walking into a little jungle in your house, and so yeah, I just feel like it's this this great little frontier to encourage people to experiment. I mean, part of my job is to say this is how you will have success. These are the these are the rules that we've worked out that time's worked out, that gardeners have worked out, that thousands of years of agriculture have worked out, or whatever it is, that's how you'll have success. But I think also part of my job is to be a bit of a risk taker and to encourage other people to take risks because gardening is all of your best laid plans and then you step backwards on it. You know, like you do everything right and then you step on that bulb just before it's about to flower, you know, because you're doing something else in the garden bed. So, you know, things go wrong. And things go right, and the best bits are in between. And if you have something that dies, it gives you a great opportunity to try exactly. something else. Exactly. I've got a tiny house. I don't have room for more plants. So every time something fails, I go, oh, great. <laughs> now space for something new. And, of course, don't forget, too, that Australian native plants do fantastically as bonsais. Exactly. Yes, yes. People yes. more and more are experimenting with, with using mm, them in bonsais, mm, and some of them look Stunning. Mm, and, it, you mm. know, again, that's rule-breaking. I was, I was talking about this with another of my colleagues, Jane, who's, who's very involved in Australian plants. She, she edited the, uh, the Plants of the Western Plains, or Flora of Melbourne book. Um, and she, uh, she and I were talking about that. I was saying, I, I want to, should I film a story about transplanting? Because I've got a few things I need to shuffle around. But you think about the practicalities of television is that I film it in May. It doesn't go to air until July. That's so, right. So there's this kind of, okay, should I be telling people to do this and this? Yes, the, of course, the pomegranate can be dug up because it'll be dormant but it's cold where I live you know so we have these conversations can we do that is there enough is there enough good I'm doing giving people the information about how you move things to to warrant that it goes to air in winter and um and she said well you know the thing is like people would say not to move a native and and, you know the the follow-up to that is that one of my best bits of advice I've ever been given is from Con the Organic Gardener who may in fact be listening to us right now his answer to me every time I ask him a question about grafting or about you know time I say and when should I when's the best time to do it Con and he'd say whenever you have time Millie and it is a really valid answer that sometimes you have to do things when you are there with exactly. the spade in your hand, exactly. thinking I need to do that job, you know, our, our perfectly laid timing. So if you have the principles around things to, to, to say, okay, well, it's really hot. I mean, I have dug up plants on 40 degree days when I'm moving out and thrown them bare root into the back of my ute and driven to the new house, put them in the ground and it's worked. You know, and so yet nobody would recommend doing nobody it. Nobody would recommend doing it, but I'm not leaving them. <laughs> I'm not leaving that cottonus. There's a bulldozer coming in here next. So, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing with the bonsai. She said, you know, I me- remember sitting watching it at Australian Plant Society when one of the Aussie bonsai guys just pulled this bangs here out of a pot and like saw its root off and everyone in the room is like... <gasps> They're like, it's fine, we do this all the time. <laughs> you know, so it's, yeah, learn the rules and then break the rules and experiment. And if people have got some interesting plants indoors, I'd be, you know, I'd love to hear about that because I think it's, um, you know, it is sort of like, here's the indoor plant section. You know, here's the things that we've chosen and propagated and we know they do well, of course. It's good to have those reliable things but you know what else can you muck around with mm. i have to bring half of my garden inside mm. because it's so cold and mm. i've got all these quirky little euphorbias and all of these things 
they go into a bit of a slow decline, but still, they, you know, they come indoors for the winter and then back out in the summer. Yes. What else have people had success with? Exactly. Um, we will go to uh, some of our callers. First up, we're going to David, who's in Sorrento. Good morning, David. Yes, good morning, good morning. Beautiful day down here, lovely and still and mm. just perfect. Excellent. Um, now, look, I've got a couple of quick ones, if I can slip them in. Sure. Um, I'm just looking at my petostrums, and they've all done pretty well, but I've got a couple that haven't done so well, and the leaves are very yellow. But when I sort of scratch the, uh, um, the, the stem, they're still, it's still green. It looks as if they're alive. Right. Are they in a line, David, or are they sort of... Yes, they're in a line. And are the the ones that aren't doing well at one end, or are they sort of dotted through? Um, No, dotted. Um, Fortunately, there's only um, one or two of them. Um, But, um, yeah, one I'm looking at in particular now really hasn't grown much, um, and it's quite yellow. The leaves haven't turned brown, um, Mm -hmm. but it's a little bit thinner than the others, but it it looks as if it's alive, um, and if it is alive... um, how do I resurrect it or what Have else you been I do watering with it? through this really dry summer? Look, it's hard to keep the water up to yeah. them um, because it's this sort of sandy beach soil. Yeah. Um, so that's... Um, that, that would be that, my, um, my... I mean, I've got to admit, after working in a nursery for, for a long, long time at Pointons and wheeling out more petosporums for people to plant than almost any other plant, I was a yes. bit... I didn't have a lot of love for them, and then I went to New Zealand, and I had a lot of love for them because yes. I saw them growing in a high rainfall, you know, really, really in the suitable place. So I think as tough as they are, and they are tough, you know, yes. they grow them yes. just as much as a hedge in WA as they do here. Mm-hmm. They do need a bit of water. And, look, they also will not respond well to being in a heavy clay, you know, really sodden spot. But my feeling is that given the season we've had, it's yes. more likely this, to be underwater very, than over. It's very dry, sandy soil. Just sort of spraying them with sea soil or anything like that, um Help. Well, for, look, that's sort of foliar feeding, but what you probably really need to do is, if you can, try and work on that soil. So what you might do is, um, for a sandy soil profile, a little slurry of worm castings every now and then washed into the soil. You, you need to try and get lovely organic matter down into the soil um, yes. and that's actually going to hold moisture, which is a real challenge in sand. And so yes. um, I would be in the habit of top dressing with composts and things like that as opposed uh-huh. to nice nice organic mulches and just be constantly feeding that soil. Um, right. And remembering that a really good deep soak every now and then, like, you know, I, I tend to water, and this sometimes is not within the, the program water plan, but often what I will do for some of my smaller trees, and I've had to do it for trees that really shouldn't need it this summer, but I was looking at my person and I thought, you're thirsty, aren't you? You know, you're a yeah, young tree. Yeah, is yeah. while I'm working in the garden, I just put the hose on a trickle and I might have it trickling on there for two or three hours, really, really slow rate. I know some gardens in Adelaide now that they are applying with very, very low pressure, large droplet sprinklers. They're, yeah. they're applying for sort of 12 hours overnight Mm-hmm. Small, you know, mm. like nice just deep slow, soaks. Just let it Absolutely, soak. really, really trying okay. to get that water to penetrate. You might even find using one of the the organic um, wetting agents might be useful because being a sandy yes. soil, it's probably the water doesn't dribble in too well. That's right. That um, certainly doesn't. But yeah, get yourself a worm farm. Get it absolutely cranking, and then 
not just the leachate from that worm farm, but also the, the actual castings mixed up into a really loose slurry of water and push on. It's really great for your pot plants too when they're starting to sort of yeah. get to that dry out point. Wash it on and those little worm castings wash into all the little gaps and they're like a clay particle in that they actually do hang on to moisture, so they're negatively oh, charged. Fantastic. Really, really good stuff. Uh, probably an easier option for me would be to get some sort of mulchy type seaweed. Is that of any value on the garden? Um, it is of value um, in in that uh, a lot of people do like to mulch with it, but you've just got to be worried about the salt. So I'd drag it onto the lawn and let it have a rinse for a few rains mm-hmm. um, and using it as part of... I would use it amongst other things, so use right. it alongside other things. But, yeah, okay. certainly seaweed is... Um, if it's legal for you to collect it, I'm not sure where it yeah, is and sure. isn't. Yeah, um, But, yeah, definitely worth bringing into your compost. And your, It's funny right. stuff. It doesn't break down if it's sort of covered up very well. Um, it's, right. Yeah, it, it, yeah, but it is very biologically active too, so really good stuff. All right. Good on you. Good Thanks luck. For your help. Okay. okay. Bye. 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 Oh, next up we have our good friend Gwen Elliott online. Good morning, Gwen. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Um, good morning. <clears throat> yeah, you were talking about growing Australian plants indoors before. Yes. And yes. I thought I'd just mention a couple of books which people might be able to pick up at their oh. local library. Oh. I imagine they're both out of print. Um, but you may be able to get them online or from a second-hand bookseller or pick them up at the library. Um, The first one I've got in front of me is Growing Native Plants Indoors by John Wrigley and Murray Fagg. Now, this was published under the Mount Annan Botanic Botanic Garden Series in Sydney. Now, it goes back a few years, 1992, but, you know, lots of excellent information in there. Can I borrow it, Gwen? <laughs> yeah, sure. We'll find, find meet you in a dark alley this week somewhere. Anytime. <laughs> um, it's a, a small paperback, so yeah, if fantastic. you were buying it, unless it's a collector's item, you'd probably get it for between 10 and $20, yeah. I imagine. Uh, the other one was a bigger book published even earlier, 1987. Yep. Uh, it's Australian Native Plants for Indoors, and that was published by Little Hills Press in Crow's Nest, New South Wales. Uh, the authors were D and P. Ratcliffe, R-A-T-C-L-I-F-F-E. But the Wrigley and Fag one is good, uh, and probably most books on growing plants in containers mm. uh, would include you know, native plants or certainly if they're growing Australian plants in containers would include indoor plants because um, if you're going to grow plants indoors, they are usually in containers Mm. Mm. Um, and it does allow us in Melbourne to grow a number of tropical um, species that don't like the conditioned outside as much. Mm. Mm. Do you have any top picks for people who want to give something a go? Oh, no, no. Look, I think just the regular, um, you know, things of of good gardening would apply. If you're in a dusty environment, when you're dusting the furniture, make sure you give the plants a wipe over too. Uh, Any plant in a container will need your assistance in terms of water and nutrients. Um, So you're going to have to fertilise. And some of the things that have been grown in plants in containers over the years uh, tall rainforest trees even. So you might only have them for five years, 10 years, mm. 15 years, and they'll get too big, but that's okay. Um, yeah. You know, much better value than a bunch of, of flowers. And research has been done on the human benefits of having plants indoors, and this is why you see a number of places now that are growing plants indoors, both commercial environments and also um, 
uh, other situations as well. Mm, fantastic. Anyway, I just thought I'd mention those two books. There are a few around and, um, you we'll know, hopefully pursue. the information is yes, out there. That's really helpful. That's Thanks, great. Thank, Thank you, Thank you. Okay. Bye. See you. Bye. Is there anything the Elliots don't know? <laughs> I think you know, but it is so true. Like there's a, there's, these ideas have been around forever. It's just how do you how do you get a whole new generation to grab them and, and run with it? And and as you say, um, for some reason, um, having indoor plants at the moment has really just taken off with the younger generation. It's, it's great, which is wonderful because they may not have access to any soil outside. Yeah, if they're absolutely. you know in a high rise apartment or something. So I, yeah, I think it's wonderful. Well, I experiment with growing natives in pots, but just by my front door. So they're not quite indoors, but they're sheltered. And I've yeah. got. Um, um, little flags I've got thryptomenes I've got mm. aromophilas and they all flower beautifully in mm. pots mm, mm. just need that watching the watering and they get morning sun and afternoon shade so I they're doing quite well and they just give you that wonderful little burst of delicate flowers I think, by your um, front door I mm. actually think one plant that I haven't brought indoors but I'm suspicious that it would do quite well is actually the lemon myrtle so I find that oh, to yes. be one of the best Front doorstep plants. At my place it gets a couple of hours sun only in the morning. Um, but really, I mean, and it gets very cold in winter and everyone's like, oh, what's wrong with your plant? I'm like, no, no, it'll be fine. Once it warms up, it'll, it'll sit back up. But, you know, I'm sure that in, you know, a good bright spot, you could easily grow that plant, which would mean you then have a cup of tea anytime you want one. You don't even have to go outside into the garden to get your cup of tea. You can just walk exactly. across the room. So, yes. look, I'm sure it'd do quite well. Um, and, you know, I probably don't have the position for it. Um, but if you've got a really warm, sheltered sort of um, area, I'd, I'd give one a go. Well, I have often suggested for people who live in, have balconies and they want a little native garden, if you get one of those very wide terracotta pots, mm. you don't just put one plant in the middle. You can put a half a dozen in, yes. mulch it with little pebbles or something, and you've got this beautiful display of plants that you look down upon. So you mm. can have textures, mm. colour, mm. and you've got something that's native at the same time. I think that, you know, just need the suggestions of the plants that you can produce well, and plants. I think that, you know, and I do that in, I, I, last year I did a story, I've still got the pot, it's just coming on now, but um, where I planted, literally I was looking at the program on the board, so we look on the whiteboard and we, we see what stories are in there, and I said to my boss, there's no colour in that episode, I need to do something that's a bit colourful, you know, so we do this, we, we look and we go, right, we've got the veggie gardeners covered, we've got the native gardeners covered, we've got the character covered, yep. we've got the passionate, you know, emotional story covered, oh my gosh, there's no colour, because some people, that's what people want to see beautiful things, and so I said, I'm going to pot this this plant up. But I did it with, I think I had nine species. Right. Um, and I wanted to do it for that reason. And, and, and Gwen made that point that maybe you're only having this plant for five years. Maybe you only have it for two years inside mm. before it really has been on the slow decline, you know, in that place. But it's still good value. And, and I feel that way about potted displays sometimes. Of course, this isn't perfect. that They're all in competition. But I had a calicarpa. I had beautiful chrysocephalum, the large yes, leaf form. You know, calicarpa with its purple berries. And then and I had some yellow. purple kale. Yep. And then I had a Lamandra confertifolia with the grey foliage, mm. little grass sort of spilling over the edge there. And then I had some Brachyscomb with their gorgeous purple that tied into the Calicarpa. And, and then I had some Cineraria to look really gorgeous and silver. And I packed it all into this big copper. And a lot of people would be like, oh, that's not good horticulture. But we do it in garden beds. What's wrong with spending 100 bucks on a bunch of plants that are going to look fantastic? If you've got one pot, why do you only have to have one plant, you know? Yes, I think exactly. you can push them in there. You can feed them up. You can attend to it 
in, with the needs it needs. You need to keep it watered, and you can have a really beautiful display. And then when it comes to it, you know, a couple of things died off in the frost. A couple of things were annual, so they kind of finished up. And now I've got this maybe five species in the pot. It looks really good again this year. But also I could equally pull it apart. And redo it. And redo, redo it. it. Oh, Lassia petalum. That's the other plant oh. that I've got. Oh, Fantastic it's one of my favorites. Australian plant. One of my absolute favorites. Grey foliage and lovely purple bracts on and the flowers. It just yes. looks gorgeous with, with so many things. Such an elegant plant. I mean, that should be, be planted in the elegant, fancy mm. gardens of Melbourne. That, mm. that thing will grow almost anywhere. Mm. It grows on the coast of Port Phillip. It grows all the way up through, you know, the Central Highlands. Beautiful, elegant plant, not used in this way. Um, and, you know, it, again, I've got five or six plants that I could always pull apart and use in different ways. Right, we're going to uh, our next caller. We have uh, Margot in Hepburn. Good morning, Margot. Good morning. I um, uh, have a couple of peonies in the garden, and um, one of them looks beautifully autumnal and quite strong and just going through lovely shade as it, you know, dies back. And the other one, literally two metres away from it, looks appalling. It looks sick, and it just doesn't look good. Um, can you tell me what I should do with the peonies at this stage? Do you think they Are they different varieties? Uh, they're different colours. Yeah, they I probably, think, um, you know, would, would contribute. Oh, no, hang on. I think they're the same. I'm just trying to remember. Ah. I gifted them. That yeah. might that might contribute to them looking different, you know, even okay. though they're the same plant, different varieties of fruit and different varieties of everything will kind of go into that, that dormant period um, at different times. Yeah. Um, I, you should ring when Simon Rickard's here because if anyone knows <laughs> a thing or two about growing peonies, it is that man and his collection is outrageously beautiful. Um, ah. but, but what I would say is uh, make sure it's had enough moisture I would probably be top dressing. I might even give it a top dressing with lime, dolomite lime, yeah. um, to if 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 you you know test the pH. But they do like um, you know quite specific soil conditions. I'd probably top dress with a bit of cow manure too, and um, and make sure it has a really good deep soak because. My instinct would be, you know, it's just been so dry um, that things that shouldn't have been dry were dry this year. Okay. Don't, don't chop it back. Just let it do its thing, but just give it good... Just let it go dormant. Um, yeah. But um, you might... Uh, if it, is it a tree peony or a herbaceous? It must be a tree peony. No, it's not a big, tall one. It's just a little bush. Herbaceous. herbaceous. One, so once it dies back, you could obviously cut yeah. it back to the ground. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Mm. Okay. Bye. Yeah, I get nervous giving advice about peonies, but Simon might not be listening. He might be away, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, oh, look, I mean, they're one of those. They are. I've thought about I've never thought about growing one, and now I live in a cold climate. I'm like, oh, well, maybe just one, you know, but which one? (laughs) There a wonderful collection in the Bagatel Gardens in Paris last year. They've got a complete section on peonies. Oh, maybe I'll go and have a look. To die for. Mm. Um, I must uh, remind listeners, we do still have those uh, two free double passes to give away for next weekend. If you would like to um, grab one of those to go and have a look at uh, two gardens that are opening in South Gippsland in the uh, lovely little, um, well, it's almost a village of Lock in South Gippsland. Uh, there's two gardens, Lock Chester which is a European-style garden, and Wits End, which is uh, just minutes away from, from the first garden, which is a pretty cottage garden. We do have uh, one double pass for each of those gardens. If you'd like to grab one of those, uh, do uh, hop on the phones, um, 94190155, and we can have uh, one of those double passes posted out to you 
you'll get it in plenty of time for next weekend. Okay, uh, next up we have um, our very good friend from Sunshine. Good morning. Good morning, Pam, and, uh, and everybody. And I'd just like to congratulate you on your great win. Ah. And hmm. it's funny, the count, one of my friends is a counsellor. Yes. And he told me that they'd love to do and save the other park, but it was the Premier and the State Government who wanted to sell the park. Well, have I been giving them hell? Because <laughs> you had the Premier there saying they can't do it. Yeah, exactly. He came out in uh, very strong words, didn't he? Oh, he, that, that was fantastic. I laughed. And I thought, this is what lies. And I rang my friend up and I said to him, that I said, well, I always thought you were trustworthy. I said, no, I've changed my mind now. <laughs> Mind you, the, the fight's not over. Oh, look, the fight's never over. No. And you've always, all communities have got to organise and stand together, mm. even with planting trees and, um, and, and, and gardens within gardens. And, I mean, we've all got mm. to stand together. Absolutely. Anyway, I just rang up to congratulate you and, and your community, and it's fantastic. Yeah, well, we're, yeah, we're on the right track, but uh, we'll, we'll keep pushing on because um, they only talked about one particular park and, and we have 17 of them um, and we still haven't got the official um, uh, decision from councillors yet so we're waiting with bated breath well, about that as well. Well, go and knock on their door and make sure you pay the rates and they, they should be doing exactly what the community want them to do. Exactly. Mm. We put mm. them there to represent us. That's, that's correct and you make sure they know and go to councils and well I've had uh, 300 people in the council one time and you couldn't see the council meeting, you could just hear, and we won, that's how to do it. Yeah, yeah, good on you. Cummings thing, there to struggle, there to win, you don't fight, you You lose. lose. And that's very true. That's exactly right, good on you. Good night, good good afternoon from me, or morning from me. Okay, (laughs) good to hear from you. Good on you. Bye. Bye. Uh, Millie, one of our listeners wants you to repeat the name of Alison oh, in the workshops. So it's Alison Pulio, which is P-O-U-L-I-O-T, Alison Pulio. And if you search online, you'll find her um, workshops. Um, she does a lot of photographic workshops, prof- professional photographer as well. So she does a lot of nature photography workshops as well as the fungi workshops. You'll find that most of them are filled up, but you never know. She goes as far, uh, I think she's doing some stuff at... Um, Canberra at the Arboretum, she's doing a range of different um, events right up and down. And then she, you know, heads off back to Europe for a, for a time. So she lives her life often between Switzerland and Australia and, um, and just constantly trying to talk about ecology and talk with passion about understanding fungi in that. In that. She's a freshwater ecologist, actually, but sort of came, came to this and... Um, and uh, yeah, just thinks that if we could understand fungi a little bit better, then and and start to look at the natural world in the way fungi operates, which is completely interconnected with everything in its environment, we might actually manage our natural systems much better. There is such a whole world underneath our feet that we know so little about. It's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, you look at something like we all know about the truffle, so we all know sure. about the black truffle. Um, you know, this celebrated thing. Yeah. Australian plants produce truffles. 
They don't produce that, that edible truffle, and maybe there is the world's best truffle somewhere underfoot. I kind of hope there isn't because then there's going to be people out there mm-hmm. um, trashing the bush looking for exactly. it. But, but all, of, all, of, all of the eucalypts have mycorrhizal associations mm. with fungi, and the fruiting body is that underground mushroom. It's evolved because it's so darn tough up above the ground. You might mm. as well fruit below the ground. And, and as I said, you know, it's, it's a major food source for a lot of native animals, and um, you know, as well as... All of these amazing fungi, we've got such a range of introduced flora in Australia too that we have a range of introduced fungi as well. So, look, it's just such a good good thing for sharpening your observation skills, you know, really learning to slow down and spot some of these mushrooms. We, we found pixie, a little, a little uh, mushroom in the forest in the Otways a couple of years ago that's probably only... Um, you know, the, the cap is about the size of my little fingernail, but it's this amazing little mushroom that glows blue. Last year I found two clumps of omphalatus, which is a mushroom that glows in the dark. It's got this amazing phosphorus. I mean, you just can't even, and they don't really even know why it does that. You know, it's not necessarily attracting a pollinator or, you know, it's, it's extraordinary. And Millie, what about all the research that the herbarium does on fungi? Dr. Oh, May, absolutely, Dr. Fung- Fungi Map. I'm assuming um, he's he's probably running some events himself. And Fungi Map, I think Sapphire, who's so speaking at um, at the Mullum Mullum Festival, is connected to so Fungi Map as well. So there's the botanical research behind that goes on in the herbarium. But mm. only a small amount. I think Tom is perhaps the only mycologist or was the only mycologist I- employed in botanic gardens for a long time. And I, I guess this is like why I love going out with, with Alison is just she's such a passionate communicator that she's just trying, she's a one-man band trying to, get the world to realise that of all the threatened species in the world, animal and vegetable, that the fungi aren't really considered and they are so quickly affected by the way we garden. I mean, we talk about even just putting fertiliser in your garden, even organic fertiliser in your garden can be detrimental to exactly. what's going on in the soil. We don't understand it entirely. So yes. it's, it's just such a thing. It's funny, I was talking before about like learning and seeing something new and the connectedness of gardening, that this is why you know, it's such a gift, and we know that, that you can just be wandering around in your garden and you're thinking about things much bigger picture than yourself. But on my beautiful black corn that I was talking about a bit earlier, I had a couple of weeks ago the most, you know, really busy. I've been super busy building a new chook run out the back of my garden, which took a lot of energy and a lot of weekends. And I'd sown this black corn down there as a bit of a seed crop because it was just this lovely north-facing spot where there was nothing growing. And uh, I walked past. It was a Sunday night, and I sort of spun around, and I had the worst infestation of aphids you've ever imagined. If people get onto my Instagram, the Thrifty Gardener, you can see it was disgusting, right? <laughs> and all of the leaves, like thick like butter on toast, oh this, my these aphids. And then, uh, of course, on the top of the, the cobs as well, and ants running up and down. And so, of course, I don't really want to disrupt ants. I quite like them, and I think they're really important. Anyway, so this thing's happening. I had no time to deal with it, but I went, oh, God, I have to think about doing something next weekend. What I did notice was that a few of those aphids, and I'm talking thousands, were brown and, and dead. And I thought, oh, oh, maybe there's something going on already. You know, that little shells yeah. in them, predators. In. A week later, my thickest toast moving sea of green aphids is... A sea of dead, parasitised aphids. Really? With, you can even see, and we, t- we actually took some macro footage of it too okay. l- last week. So it'll be, when it'll air, it's a little, yeah, yeah. little thing, so it'll just get shoved into an episode of Fill a Gap. But 
um, just extraordinary because you can actually see, and I was reading up, there's a couple of parasites, natural parasites of the aphids. Obviously, ladybird larvae do a good job too, but unlikely in this probably cooling off period of the year to, to have a big run of those. They tend to take care of a lot of the aphids in earlier in spring. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but this amazing little wasp, tiny little wasp, lays its eggs in the in the aphid and they develop and they burst out of the back of the aphid and you can recognise it. I think it's called aphidious wasp. Um, there's a couple of species by its very neat exit hole. <laughs> very alien-like. But, you know, this this amazing... I had to do nothing. And, you know, admittedly, if I was growing a commercial crop, it would not have been good to have that load of aphid on it. But I got plenty of cobs, you know. These are, these are already, they're already pollinated. They're already forming that seed. They're ripening. The plant is slowing right down, which is probably why it starts to be a bit susceptible to, to, mm. to pest attack. Mm. Um, it's growing in a place where there isn't a lot of other stuff growing, so there's not necessarily all the other insects and, and things happening. It was a very sort of bare spot. And then, uh, you know, doing nothing, I have this amazing thing happen in front of my eyes. And um, I was just reading in the, in the Mullum Mullum Festival for the um, fantastic, uh, you mentioned the mosses and liverworts, yes, um, yes. that they're suggesting to bring a jeweler's loop if anyone has one, which is just, you can actually, and I, I, I just, it made me think of that. It made me think it was the first thing I went and got was my little geology lens, which yes. is a tiny little hand lens. You need to see the details. Yeah, to go and have a look. It's fantastic if you're going out fungi hunting too. Mm, um, it's thing. the best gift you can get a, a, a 10-year-old or an 8-year-old mm. who's interested in nature. Get on and you can buy them from the mining companies. You buy a geologist hand lens um, so that you can see tiny, tiny things in detail. And that's how I, I looked at those. Uh, you'll get the macro footage on the television, but I was doing it with my hand lens yes, to see right. these, you know, these poor little aphids <laughs> blasted apart. But, um, yeah, great little tool for, mm. for someone who's interested in looking at that detail. But that is the exact reason why gardeners shouldn't see a so-called pest in the garden and instantly pull out the chemicals oh. and start spraying. Even if I'd sprayed, a, you know, a, a horticultural oil or something that's really, really low tox, it's very likely that it would disrupt that routine. And exactly. I want, I and want that parasite... Yeah, yeah. I want the parasite to be present or maybe killed it or just prevented it mm. from having a population in my garden. Mm. So maybe they're like, oh, these are a bit wrong, these aphids. They're a bit slimy. Um, I, I'll go and lay my eggs in the aphids next door. So maybe my neighbour's roses are benefiting from the parasite, but I'm not. So, look, I think it is... Being a, uh, I, I use the word lazy, but really just being a busy gardener is not always the, the you know, because we all, I'm sure, feel like we want to spend more time in our gardens. And I'm always chasing my tail, you know. I have to get that done for this reason or that done for this reason, but I really want to be working on this, but I can't because I've got this priority over here yes, for this exactly. deadline or whatever it is. I think we all feel like You know, the seedlings <laughs> are still sitting there waiting to go in. The yes. seeds should have been sown three weeks ago. The garlic is going in today. <laughs> <laughs> That's the priority for the day. But, you know, it does have its benefits sometimes when you can't deal with something yep. to actually get to observe it. It was a fantastic. If people want to see it, it's on my Instagram account, which you can Google if you're not on Instagram too. You can just look me up. It's the Thrifty Gardener. Um, and I took some photographs of before and after as best as I could with a little phone um, camera. But they have taken some beautiful macro footage as well. Terrific. Terrific. We must get to a couple more callers. Uh, let me see. First up, we're going to Margaret down in Cowes. Good morning, Margaret. Oh, good morning, team. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just a simple question. I'm working in a garden today, and a grevillea has been in the ground for 12 months. Is it possible to move it? 
The rules would say no, but I'd say if you have to, you should. Yes, I think autumn is probably the best mm. time to do it. The soil yes. is still warm. Yeah. Um, make sure you have get the whole root ball, keep it moist while you transplant it. Prepare the spot you're going yes. to first. That's, yeah. that's the thing I think we forget you, all the time. You, you should have luck. Don't yeah. don't prune it down a bit until it gets established, and then you perhaps could give it a You tip. wouldn't prune? Not necessarily at the beginning perhaps a bit later on, just to encourage some more tip growth. Depends on how big it is. It depends yes. if it's a big, big it's bush. It's about a metre high. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'd probably take a, uh, maybe a quarter to a third off, just, but not into woody growth, just for physical manoeuvrability. Um, uh, yeah, it is, it's an interesting question, though, whether to prune or not mm. to prune um, when moving. But I would take it back, but not into hard woody growth, just some of that leafy, yes. just a tip. Oh, great. Oh, thank you very much. Mm. Okay, good luck with that. Why, why would you not prune it? Because as a native you, you, plant because, No, not, not an expert ah. at all, but wouldn't you want the root growth to get established first before you started tipping off the green parts? Well, it depends mm. on... I, I wouldn't take off all the foliage, no, that's for sure, but, but I, a, would, I would reduce the foliage load. Mm. Um, but, yeah, look, it's, it's a really interesting thing. I remember a colleague of mine used to say he never pruned anything when he moved it or transferred. He said, because I know the plant will drop what it can't support itself. And, um, you know, it, equally, I, I was speaking with a horticulturist, one of the guys who worked on Barangaroo in Sydney, and he was saying that they actually dehydrate everything before they transplant it. So our instinct is to keep things moist. But for big trees, he said, particularly for transport, they dehydrate them so they're less likely to break. Oh. Or be bri- I know. And, you sa- and I said, you know, I've never had anyone say that to me. And he said, well, it used to be how we did things. It's old horticulture. He was in his 70s, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, it's such an interesting question and, and, and sometimes you can't work out why something didn't move successfully when you try it this way and then you try it that way. But, um, yeah, I, I, my instinct would be to reduce the load a bit but not certainly not oh, cut no, it back to no, stumps. not at all, not at all, yeah. no. Okay, let's go next to Philippa in Sydney. Good morning, Philippa. Good morning, a very interesting program. Uh, by the by, what you're just talking about, the Grevillea, I uh, just had three young chaps move out from next door they were renting and um, uh, not being gardeners, they just cut everything to the ground. Oh. Oh. Did they the think they garden. were tidying up? Absolutely. <laughs> now, I, I, because you're just talking about Grevilleas, this is that lovely yellow honeypot one, uh, mm. it's growing back. Mm. So there, there was just a little stub at the very base. Oh, that's excellent. Uh, and, and it's actually got around about eight leaves on it. So it's just, uh, that's in clay, but that's not removing from the roots. So, eight, uh, eight leaves I'm, is a good sign. <laughs> eight is good. <laughs> but look, the reason that I rang was this. Uh, out of my morning walk, because I've pulled a hamstring instead of... Uh, it, I was around... <laughs> trying to work out where I was going to start with my electric hedging uh, uh, apparatus and instead I've done my hamstring so it'll be two weeks before I get there but in my walking you know like getting prepared Mm. early morning walk um, if you drew a line from Melbourne directly up the Hume Highway my Sydney Road this side of Melbourne which is the, uh, the western side towards Mount Macedon very highly clay. One of the reasons why the developers didn't have housing in this area. You know, the beautiful volcanic grows beautiful roses. However, what I'm trying to say is those people listening who want to establish gardens, as some have done here, the new miniature-sized blocks, they're all putting in this gigantic um, yuccas and in the drought that we've had for these last six months, mm. 
concrete starting to lift. And these are uh, smaller than the quarter acre block. Yeah, the yucca elephant typies, yes, I think absolutely. it is. Absolutely, <laughs> and, and it's actually causing an issue, and I don't think, oh. you know, because you're so busy with your young family, uh, not aware that it's actually lifting concrete, and to remove the uh, roots would be an issue if you've planted it on the water line, and perhaps if you would uh, perhaps give them some Australian quarter lines instead <laughs> of the suggestion. Western Plains, yeah. Good plenty, choice, plenty good choice. Pl- it is a funny one, isn't it, that you, you see those developers' plants going in and, well, it's very and they much have no the idea Landscapers dream have yuccas. They're very structural Do you know and they're very popular. They're, I, oh, I, I sort of hate them, but then I don't. I, I did see a whole lot dumped in the bush in um, the Blackwood Forest the other day and I was just like, and not only is it, you know, so someone's just cut them down, they can't be bothered paying for the tip, but as well as dumping the plant material, which is probably not going to get out of hand there, although it can have a little go. They dump all this soil, which is just a weed load, basically. They're taking their oxalis and flickweed and all these yes. other things and dumping it in the bush. So if I ever catch you, you boneheads, um, <laughs> I'll get you. But, you know, there are plenty of plants out there for people to choose, but the problem is that no one really values them enough and so they don't employ people who really, really know what they're doing to do these these, these developments. There's some great developments with with great indigenous plantings with great water management with mm. all of those things happening but so much of it is is low, yeah, if low you fire. showed that if you showed on tv uh particularly where it's uh, lifting uh the concrete uh, and the the smaller blocks i think you would save people a, a lot of a lot time of heartache and effort. yeah i'll leave that with you good morning to you oh, all yeah. thank you very much. our list of jobs okay. <laughs> Once I get the garlic in, maybe I could solve the yucca problem of the western suburbs. <laughs> okay, thanks, Philippa. Um, we must get through these callers before we have to run out of time. We'll go next to Ruth, who's in Box Hill. Good morning, Ruth. Oh, good morning. Um, thanks so much. Um, look, I was hoping to speak to Millie and just get some ideas about um, what I could uh, or how I can improve drainage in a concrete uh, laundry trough. Ah, yeah. are you using it as a big pot? Uh, yeah, I want to basically try and grow some vegetables in it. So oh. what I've done is I've propped it up on some bricks. Yep. Um, but it only has, you know, the, um, the, the downpipe like, Yep. They do make fantastic um, things for growing water plants in. Believe water it or not, you could always grow your, your water chestnuts. And I grew water spinach this year, which is just the most delicious green. Yep. Um, so you can certainly use it that way. Um, you could you could actually drill more holes. You need a, a pretty serious yeah. um, drill uh, to, drill, yep, to oh, get yes. through that. Um, but elevation, I think, is probably what yeah. what you've done is a really good idea. And then just using a really good quality, high quality potting mix um, yeah. as your as your media. You can amend it a bit with um with they're quite deep, so you can amend it a bit with some cow manure and compost up top. But just make yeah. sure that you're using something that's really well drained down the bottom. Um, yeah. And the science of the crock is is out that a crock actually impe- impedes drainage yeah, as opposed to um, yeah. improving it um, as as it was used for a long time. So yeah, I would um, if you can, you might if you've got someone who you know who carries some serious tools, it might be yeah, worth. If you want yeah. to grow veggies, um, draining a little bit more freely. That's However, right. saying that. Um, you know, you might even look at that as an advantage and try and create some sort of small wicking bed. You might put a hole in the side. I was going to say, they replayed yes. Sophie's one. So yes. you might put um, your drainage hole in the side. On the side, yeah. yeah. and actually utilise that, mm. that to your so, advantage. So what would I use, sorry, uh, on the bottom of that, uh, like uh, gravel? Or yeah, anything? any gravel you can get your hands on. Um, 
particularly in that small sort of size. Scoria is great because it's really light Scoria, um, right. and quite cheap. But and how deep would it have to be? So you want about a 30 centimetre maximum soil depth. So whatever the, uh-huh. the, the retaining um, area. So it could be a little bit less than that uh-huh. um, so that you've got a nice little reservoir of, say, 100 mils of, of, of depth of, of water. But, yeah. Um, yeah, certainly can be done. And yeah. um, it's just I think that the, the one thing that was really, really great in the design that Sophie Thompson uses is there's flexibility in the outlet. She uses a uh, where she's got the overflow. Instead of it just being a, an overflow, it can actually twist up or, or twist, twist down, down. To, to drain. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. means you can actually keep it flowing through winter if it's pouring you can actually twist it round so it just drains very freely um, and then spin it round to, to retain more moisture in, in the summer. I expect and she that can would catch be up on iView can't you to see how that process works again Yeah you definitely can see it online, we've got a brand new website at Gardening Australia that's something like 15 years oh, in the making <laughs> but the team have been working really hard behind the scenes but it was replayed in um, I should, I just briefly will mention because we had so many emails and people got very upset and yes. can't believe you're replaying old stories but I promise you we're making 36 brand new hours this year and just to extend our season because we came back on air really early we came on in in January they wanted us on air we want to stay on air till spring so what we're doing we're doing six shows throughout the year we're giving them a loose theme so um, you know we'll put some of our favorite stories back together to replay we're going to do six of those through the year and they'll be in three little groups of two Um, we are working really really hard it's not necessarily equivalent of 72 old programs but it's not far off it. So that's what we're making this year. Um, so it's just a little bit of breathing space for the team to, um, to work on, on things ahead because it's a, it's a huge amount of TV we're making. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's definitely online, Sophie's wicking mm. bed story, mm. and it'll give you the principles great. which you'll need to then adapt, which yep. is the fun bit. Yeah, yep, that's great. Oh, thanks so much. I'll have to have a look at that and yeah. um, I'll enjoy all your inventive ideas on oh. the ABC Garden <laughs> Show. Great, great, great. Alright, thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Bye. And we've just got time to quickly go to uh, Margot. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Pam. Look, yeah, I'll be very quick. Uh, Kite and Horticultural Society last Monday had Greg Boulderston on to speak. Oh, on oh yes. And um, it was fantastic. And he's a local Mount Macedon freak. He's so passionate, like all these fungi people seem to be. <laughs> it's a thing, isn't it? Yeah, it does seem to be. And he had all the sides of the things you've been talking about, the blue caps and the bits and bobs and... Was fantastic, but um, he takes uh, trips. Great. So if anyone's interested, you could give him a call, and he will take you out at any time of the day or night, and uh, along with leeches and his dogs and everything. So you can go um, looking for the glow in the dark mushrooms with Greg. Yes, you can with Greg, and he's not just like an hour from Melbourne. If that to get to Mount Macedon. How um, so, how um, do people get in touch with him, Margot? Well, he has got a website called Longjonimus, which is the word long. Yep. Onimus. And, you know, it does sound Latin, doesn't it? He's a plant freak. And, uh, or you could ring him on 0438 296 006. Great. Failing that, you can always get in contact with, um, Stephen Ryan at his nursery because he knows Greg very well right. too. And yeah. I would encourage anyone who's going out into the forest to look for fungi, edible or not, and obviously all the disclaimers of not being silly and putting things you don't know what they are in your mouth. Um, yeah. Raz on everyone who's dropping rubbish out there because the last two years I've seen more and more rubbish dropped in the forest and I know they're just pine forests a lot of the time, but everyone, give everyone a hard time. If you see someone drop, and particularly they're collecting for restaurants because they're dropping those plastic blue gloves oh. and I want the restaurants to be hard on too. It was absolutely a mess on the mountain last year and 
And mm. so got it. we've got it. More people are out there looking, which is great, but let's give them a really hard time. Okay. okay. <laughs> Thanks for Thanks all of that, Margot. Okay. Got to give them a hard time. It's, it, was such, it was so heartbreaking. And I, I know it's just pine forest, but, you know, we're talking about Mullum Mullum, the creek. It's all the same waterway. It's all the same catchment. That blue glove is just going to end up in the same river. And then in Port Phillip Bay. In, yep. Yeah, exactly. Okay. We do have to uh, wind up. Um, we've unfortunately run out of time. Lindsay, please remind listeners about the <coughs> plant sale next weekend. Yes, please come along to our Growing Friends Autumn Plant Sale. It's on next weekend, Saturday the 28th from 10 till 4, Sunday the 29th from 10 till 3, Gate E in the Royal Botanic Gardens. Um, I'll give you the Melway reference again, Map 2L, reference C2. The front entry is free, and if you're a friend of the Botanic Gardens, you'll get a 10% discount. Fantastic. And I also need to remind listeners about the Mullum Mullum Festival. It's coming up next weekend and the following weekend. So 28th and 29th and then the 5th and the 6th. Um, Jump online and you can download the whole uh, program because it's absolutely wonderful. Just go to mullumullumfestival.org.au and to attend any of these sessions, it's purely a $2 donation per person per session and definitely well worthwhile. A big thank you to everyone. We have run out of time. Especially thank you to Rosemary and Robin who've been handling all the phones. But we will be back again. I won't be, but AB will be uh, in the chair uh, for me and uh, we'll be back at 7.30. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.